Phil Riken tells the story of George O'Leary. In December of 2001, George O'Leary was on the top of the world. He had just been named the head football coach of the Fighting Irish of Notre Dame, a long and prestigious tradition for that university. It was the dream job of a lifetime for George O'Leary. He was in charge now of a group of men that any would be envious to lead. Two days later, at the end of his first day on the job, the call came. You see, a reporter had been trying to contact some of the guys who had played college football with O'Leary back at New Hampshire. The strange thing was nobody could remember anyone named George O'Leary. So Notre Dame Sports Information Director telephoned to find out what it was all about. O'Leary, O'Leary reluctantly then admitted that he hadn't actually played football at New Hampshire. Uh, let's see, there was uh, the knee injury, the one year. Oh yeah, and then he had mono, and on and on it goes. And maybe somebody had just kind of made a mistake. The next day, the reporter called back to say that he had found some documentation. Years before, when O'Leary had applied for a job at Syracuse, he had been asked for information about his athletic background. Some of the information he provided was true, like the high school football championships, but somehow it didn't look impressive enough, so he decided to improve his resume. There it was, 21 years later, in his own handwriting, college, University of New Hampshire, three-year letterman. It was just a small lie, really but it was big enough to turn George O'Leary's dream job into a nightmare, costing him not only the job, but ultimately his reputation. Exodus 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We come to the ninth commandment in our journey through the book of Exodus and here parking at Mount Sinai in chapter 20 for a bit. The Ninth Commandment, which is the law against false witness. We have here a judicial context. It's a courtroom setting. But this is really the starting point for an entire body of law and guidance and wisdom, wherein Scripture will champion the bedrock of truth, and it will expose the snare of lies. Now, lies and deceit are all around us, aren't they? In fact, not only around us, but within us, which is where the real problem is. From clickbait to pornography, from campaign promises to political posturing, from covering our tracks by deleting our browser history to media gaslighting, from personal hypocrisy that fits into whatever crowd it happens to find itself in at the moment, to the apocalyptic lies that control the cultural narrative and seize power over the masses. When half a news story is reported and glamorized and yet the other half is suppressed. When the talking heads of our day start to simulate the old rhetoric, it's not happening and it's a good thing that it is. Then we know we're surrounded by lies and deceit. This law, the ninth commandment, is necessary for society. It's necessary for human flourishing. It's necessary for personal morality and personal maturity. Our call in Christ is that we are made to be men and women of the truth. 
This morning what I'd like to do is to go to the book of Jeremiah and see there the devastating impact of deception and then see how we are a people birthed in truth and grounded in truth and by the grace of God we don't need to leave even the confines of the book of Jeremiah to see that. Jeremiah 9 then is where we'll be for the bulk of our time this morning, Lord willing. Jeremiah 9 comes after young Jeremiah, probably in his early 20s, has given dire warnings to the nation, chapters 2 through 6, to let the people know of the certainty of coming judgment at the hands of Babylon. Then he gets to chapters 7 through 10. These chapters follow the cleansing of the temple that was ordered by the new king, Josiah. There, the scroll of the law was discovered, and it was brought out, and it was read. And so there's been some measure of a, a revival amongst the people. The nation is, is flush with confidence. Now they have the restored temple, and now they have, once again, the law. Yet, chapter 7 through 10, the prophet warns them, you can't trust in the temple you can't just trust in the fact that you have the law because what you're missing in the midst of all of it as you trust in those things is you're missing a, a trust in the Lord. Their hearts are still miles away from God. Knowing the law but not keeping it is then the issue that is addressed as we come to chapter 9. The issue of the temple is addressed before this. A people not seeking their God, in spite of, of all of their surroundings that they are so spiritual and everything is going in the right direction with the Lord, hasn't changed what's going on inside of them. And God knows, and the prophet knows, and so the warning continues. Chapter 9, pick up with me in verse 1. We'll read most of it from here this morning. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people, Jeremiah says. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go from them, for all of them are adulterers and an assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor and do not trust any brother because every brother deals craftily. Every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them. For what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit with his mouth. One speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly sets an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? For the mountains I will take up a weeping and wailing. For the pastures of the wilderness a dirge, because they are laid waste, so that no one passes through. And the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts have fled. They are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Who is the wise man that may understand this? Who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined, laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? The Lord said, 
because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and they have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it. Pause there. For our time this morning, we are mostly just going to outline this chapter, but then I want to see how it is specific about the fact that the breaking of the law, specifically the breaking of the ninth commandment, is what is really highlighted here, and I think you've already seen it because it's not a mystery nor hidden. Let's begin then with verse 1. We see the prophets laments. Jeremiah cries out and says, my people are forsaken. My people are forsaken. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet and with good reason. You can't often go too many chapters without finding him in tears. Again, this is a good example of Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Grief has overtaken him. This isn't, this isn't because uh, these hard messages, because he's, he's just a grumpy guy. He's not even an old man yet. Here he is as a young boy. In fact, Jeremiah will say, called from the womb to give these messages to a disobedient and a hard-headed nation. And as he gives them, his heart is broken time again because he knows He knows what's coming. He knows how certain the Lord is in his purpose to bring justice. Why? Because God had promised to do so. And so here he says, I could pour out tears like rivers. Now, the cause of the coming judgment, of course, has many aspects. And you could read through the entire book of Jeremiah and take a list. My guess would be you'd find all Ten Commandments and plenty of other responsibilities that they had failed at and laws they had broken. But in this section, I read through verse 13 particularly so that we could see the very reason that in this particular prophecy, God himself gives, there it is, 13, because they have forsaken my law, the core of which is the Ten Commandments, and most clearly highlighted here, the ninth of those. The ninth commandment is in the crosshairs. By my count, there are over a dozen references in just six or seven verses. Over a dozen references, I counted 13, to deceit and falsehood and lies. And so as a result of breaking the ninth commandment so thoroughly, the people will be forsaken. They have forsaken his law, so he in turn will forsake them. And Jeremiah weeps. His lament continues in verse 2. The prophet's lament My people, not only are they forsaken, but my people are insufferable. My people are insufferable. Verse 2, Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place that I might leave my people and go from them. For all of them are adulterous and assembly of treacherous men. I think in context, the mention of adultery is not here the other commandment of adultery. I think that's the seventh, if I remember rightly. But instead, it's a spiritual adultery. It's an idolatry. It's a making of other gods because at heart, the issue is one of treachery, which is so seen in their breaking of the ninth commandment because that's exactly where he's going to go. The point of all of this is Jeremiah, in the midst of it, says, this is a people that I don't even want to be a part of anymore. I, I wish I had a verbo, he says, in the desert someplace far away. We see here the prophet's desire to separate from the people. 
Now, we may not think that this is really Jeremiah's most, you know, spiritual moment. I mean, as a good prophet and one committed to the Lord's designs, you would not think that he would stand up and say, that's it, I am sick of everybody and I want to leave. The brokenheartedness we, we get because of his grief over the fact that they are so far from God. But the desire to just give up on them. And yet, who of us would feel any different? or hasn't at times felt this same. As one with a heavy burden, imagine imagine Jeremiah from his teenage years even probably having this burden for the nation. And what does he see around him? He sees flippancy. He sees blatant hypocrisy. He sees game playing. And it's just too much. And he thinks, Lord, I I can't bear it anymore. I wish I could just run away from it. I'm speaking to a group of people who live in the East Mountains, and we're like, yeah, we get that. (laughs) We've been trying to run away from society for most of our lives. That's why we live out here. My people are insufferable, he says. It's good for us to hear his heart because it's a reflection of the Lord's heart for his people, both on the one hand, the weeping over them because they have chosen that which is death and desolation, and because he's a good father, he longs for them. And yet at the same time, his exasperation, it doesn't matter what I try, they continue to turn away, he says. We'll come back to these in a moment. For now, then, let's see the Lord begins to weigh in at this point, starting in Verse 3, and we get to see here the burden of his heart, the first of the Lord's laments. He laments and he says, my people love lies. My people love lies. I won't reread to you all of the verses here, but I do want to highlight a couple. Look in the middle of verse 3. Lies and not truth prevail in the land. This is a, a people who... At Mount Sinai, which is where we are contextually in the Ten Commandments that Jeremiah is now referring back to. At Mount Sinai, that was a rescued people. That was a redeemed people. That was a people who had experienced incredible grace of God, lavished upon them to rescue them, and miracles from the heavens. And then a good law was given to them to train them to walk in it to walk in such a way that it would safeguard them from going far afield and wandering astray. The law never saved them. It didn't need to. They were already redeemed. If by faith they chose to believe, then they expressed that in the law. They were able to walk close to the Lord, and they were to walk close to him in truth. The nation of Israel was to be a place where truth was known and seen, a place And a people that dwelt in reality, not in la-la land. And the Lord says of them, lies and not truth instead prevail in the land. Go to the middle of verse 4. Because every brother deals craftily, my translation says, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. That's another specific law that, that grows out of the amplification of the ninth command, not slandering your neighbor, going about with a plan to say one thing and yet do another in the heart. My people love lies, he says. And then finally, for now, beginning of verse 5, everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. 
My people love lies, he says, until the point at which the entire culture is a practice of deception. They go around, if, if, if not as open um, destroyers of another, at the very least as posers. There's not truth, there's not vulnerability. At this point, it's a good place to pause and ask, how do we go about? How do we come dressed for a Sunday morning? Do we, do we put on a new face? Or do we, in prayer and in humility, ask the Lord, Lord, let me come with an open heart and, if necessary, even a vulnerability. Let me come to connect and to be real. Let me come to share and to draw out. Because this isn't something unique to that particular culture, although they might have become experts at it. They might have taken it to new heights in their expertise. And yet every one of us is prone to hide behind lies of what we think we should be or what we want to be. My people love lies, the Lord says of his nation at this point. You ever feel like in the midst of our culture today, you don't know who to trust anymore? No. <laughs> yeah. You don't know what to believe anymore. Our government has lied to us the last few years, hasn't it? I don't see anybody shaking their head no. Probably more openly and more forcefully than we might have thought any government would ever do, at least not any Western government. Sure, we've heard of it in communist governments. That's what they do. You have a ministry of truth, and it's their job to spread disinformation, but that couldn't happen in our society. Four years ago, I might have laughed about the conspiracies that I'm beginning to believe today, and so is the same, I would guess, for many of us. Medical experts, big pharma and on it goes. When we see leaders do things that lead just so clearly to the destruction of society, we wonder, are they that stupid? Or is it just that there's lies? The question then in response to bring it home is where are the lies then that we find comfortable? We live amongst a culture of lies. And that's always been the case. It's maybe just become more obvious in recent years. The question for our hearts is where are we with the Lord and are we a people who have become then party to the same or will we stand different? Where are the lies that we find comfortable, those that make us acceptable to our friends, those that put us in the right kind of light, those that show that we're in the know or whatever it is that we're seeking for at the time? The Lord laments, my people love lies. Next, the Lord laments, my people have ceased to know me. My people have ceased to know me. I want you to notice that this is the core problem. The symptom is the continual, pervasive, almost professional-like breaking of the ninth commandment. Okay, but, but that's the outcome. That's not the core problem. What's the core problem? Jeremiah tells us. Notice how this little section that mentions these transgressions of the ninth commandment so frequently, notice how this little section begins and how it ends. Look there at the end of verse 3. They proceed from evil to evil and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Now look at the end of verse 6. Your dwelling 
Sorry, that's just verse 6. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. What is the real problem at the core? It's a lack of a knowledge of God. And the Lord laments this. He laments that the people don't know him in their hearts in a way that would turn them, that would, that would draw them back from lies. Truth has the power to preserve, doesn't it? Our ways and our steps. If we just commit ourselves to speaking truth, then it will have a way of keeping us in reality. Psalm 15.4 is one of the passages you've got there in your handout for further study on the issue of lies and integrity and truth. Psalm 15.4 has a great little statement about the man of righteousness. It says, he swears to his own hurt. What it means, in case that's not clear, is that he, he speaks the truth even when it costs him something. Even when he knows he puts himself at risk. And the truth has the power to preserve us, doesn't it? But continued deceit has an opposite power. It has the power to confuse. If you lie long enough and broadly enough, after a while you'll forget what the truth is anymore. Continued deceit has the power to destroy not only the knowledge of reality, but ultimately the knowledge of God. That's what the passage is speaking to us. And this is at its heart, the brokenness of the God who is the Savior of the nation. My people don't even know me anymore. And then the Lord's last lament, we'll hear verses 7 through 9. My people must be disciplined. The last thing that the Lord grieves at this point. And it's the reason why we know the name of this dude named Jeremiah today is because God chose him and raised him up at this time for this purpose, to be this prophet, to bring this message to these people, and also inspired that message for all of his people for all time. Because my people now, in that day, must be disciplined. The Lord laments here because he says, I have no choice. It's at, it's at the point now I have no choice. Um, look at verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them, for what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? Look at verse 9. Twice. He's already got asked it once. He's going to ask two more questions. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And a third time on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? Well, the Lord is not wringing his hands. The Lord is never at a, at a loss for what to do. But a God who is holy is also long-suffering, but there comes a point. And praise God in his infinite wisdom. He knows exactly when that point is. I know personally in my own life, and I'm sure so you do as well, that God is the God of second chances and the two million and second chances, right? And many, many more. And so we always have hope to return to him, to run to him, to, to come back to him and admit, I've so, I've so fouled it up, Lord. But thank you for Christ and for your grace. But this is a people who have been unwilling to do that, unwilling to repent. And in fact, even 
the 52 chapters of the book of Jeremiah will not be enough for them to finally turn. He laments, my people must be disciplined. A God who is holy must eventually address treachery one way or another. A father who disciples and disciplines his children must eventually bring the rod. So let's pause here. Uh, you see the outline. You see what's going on here in Jeremiah 9. Now, as I said, I think it's pretty clear this highlights the transgressions of the ninth commandment. I want to pause at this point then and, and now just take inventory and dive into some of the details. Let's just take inventory of the, of the devastating impact of deception as seen in this generation in the nation of Israel that we're looking at. And, and then we'll go on from there. May it be an encouragement to us, a warning to us. So then let's review the foul banquet of festering deceit. The foul banquet of festering deceit. I want to give you from this passage eight products of deceit this morning. First, deceit brings the judgment of God. Duh, right? That's pretty clear at this. The whole point is they've broken the ninth commandment so fully. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears for the slain of the daughter of my people, he says, I weep. Why? Because the Lord has begun taking their lives. No, not yet, but the prophet sees it. He's had visions, and he knows it. He's, he's already exposited it in, in the opening chapters. He has told it more than once, and he will tell it many more times. Guys, the siege of Jerusalem is one where it says that, that they will be starved out, and some, after their children being weaker, die first, some will boil and eat their own children. So, so desperate will be the siege in Jerusalem. That will be just part of the depth of the judgment that will fall. That's a product of lies and deceit. Is a judgment that God brings that, that you and I won't like. What a great encouragement to turn us if we think, well, if I could just rescue myself in this moment by, by just a little white lie, by just saying what I think they want to hear, by, by just adding to the application that I was a three-year letterman or whatever it might be, it never ends well. The first product of deceit is it brings the judgment of God. In his time and his way, he knows second. Second product of deceit is it makes you overbearing to others. It makes you overbearing to others. Verse 2, we've already talked about it. But you tell me, do you like people? Do you hang out with people? Do you continue to pursue people whom you know you can't trust what they say? Whom you know may say one thing to your face and then the opposite behind your back. Do you like people like that? Do you then want to be people like that? I don't. But yet sometimes it's attractive and I think, well, just a little bit of it isn't bad in this case. People are smart and they see our character, don't they? You know the people that you can trust and who you can't, right? And even the people you think you can trust will sometimes fail. They'll sometimes fail us too. But a path of deceit makes us overbearing. Third, product Deceit is a gateway drug. 
Deceit is a gateway drug to more evil. Check out verse 3. They bend their tongue like they bend their tongue like their bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. Lies are a gateway drug. It's a great place to draw the line and say, okay, Lord, grant me grace. This is not going to be easy, but I will, if you give me your power, I will swear even if it is to my hurt. I will speak truth even if it means that there is a suffering to come with it. That's the best place. Because otherwise, if you lie, chances are good you'll have to lie again to cover the tracks that you first lied, and then it proceeds from there. There are so many other examples that I thought of and considered talking about this morning that, that are just obvious, huge examples of lies. You know what would be funny if it wasn't so tragic is time and time again as I thought through those different examples and I thought, hey, maybe this is where we should go. Hey, maybe this is what we should talk about. Is so often those huge examples of lies were actually so intertwined with some other huge sin that it wasn't really just all about the lies, Right? In fact, lies are just the tiny little piece of the puzzle when we come to things like, oh, I don't know, David with Bathsheba, right? Or, oh, I don't know, uh, Achan, who lived in the generation of Joshua, where they were commanded not to touch any of the goods after they had gone into the land and won victory, any of the goods, but uh, that everything was devoted to the Lord. Well, Achan lied about that. And he died for that lie. But the lie was the smallest piece of everything else that went with it. Well, you get the picture. Fourth product of deceit is that deceit destroys relationships. Destroys relationships. Verse 4, let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Why? Because they'll lie to you. Um. By the way, I just need to mention that this morning, there is a, a healthy debate about verses 1 and 2. I've already mentioned that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. There, there's a debate if verses 1 and 2 are actually Jeremiah speaking or whether they're the Lord speaking. In either case, the applications are going to end up in the same place. Um, it's just a little bit more comical and a little bit more tragic, though, if it's the Lord who says, hey, I need a verbo to get away from my people uh, in verse 2. But when we get to verse 3 and 4, 5, and 6, we know that it's the Lord speaking. And it's the Lord who says, it's so bad in the nation, you can't even trust your neighbor, people. That's, that's not a jaded Israelite speaking. That's God's honest assessment. And so relationships are, are destroyed. Related to it is the next product. Deceit <clears throat> destroys foundational trust. Deceit destroys foundational trust. That's the next line of verse 4. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor and do not trust any brother. When we lie, we sow seeds of suspicion, don't we? Well, I got lied to once. I wonder if I'm being lied to now. I don't know, I could be wrong, but I think you'll give me room, you'll understand what I'm going to say. I don't know, there isn't a single one of us, as a kid, didn't lie to our parents, right? But now that I'm on the parent side of it, it feels a lot different, doesn't it? 
My kids are awesome, by the way. I'm not throwing them under the bus. They're super cool. But, but man, as a parent, it feels different, right? Here's my point. It's not to, not to beat up the kids in the eyes of their parents. How do you think it feels to the Lord? That's the point. It just destroys trust, and it can break down interactions between parent and child, between husband and wife, between brother and brother, right? Because it sows those seeds. And then all of that bears fruit in the sixth product of deceit, which is that it destroys community. It destroys community. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor. Do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. How can there be a community of people coming together if there is an intrinsic brokenness in the ability to just speak honestly with one another? You know, uh, we do our uh, foundations class twice a year, and that class ends with our fellowship covenant. And our fellowship covenant ends with, I don't know, nine words. I don't know how many it is. Don't get mad at me because I'm not going to count them right now. Whatever the last nine words or whatever it is of that fellowship covenant, I say the same thing every foundations class. This is my favorite part of our commitment to one another. And it's, it's under the heading of preserving unity. And it is this. We make a commitment to talk to, not about. Super simple concept, right? Super simple. That's part of what we just agree to do. Guess what? I'm going to fail at that. Guess what? I have failed at that. I have gone back to people in this body and asked their forgiveness. And that's my responsibility if I fail at it. First, confess to the Lord. Second, confess to the person that I gossiped or spoke about. Thirdly, then go to the person that I spoke to and said, hey, bro, can you please forget our entire conversation yesterday because I shared something with you that I, did, I was not at liberty to say. I do not have the right to speak that way. I pray that you will forget it. And by the way, if you told anybody else about it, would you tell me so I can go and cut that off there too? That's my job. It's my fault because I made a commitment to talk to, not about what percentage of problems in most churches in America would disappear overnight if we all practiced that fairly well? Deceit destroys community. Seventh, product of deceit is that it snowballs. This kind of goes along with the idea that it's a gateway drug, (laughs) but it snowballs and it's hard to rein in. Um, I, I probably don't even need to read the verse that talks about this, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I'm committed, I'm committed to the fact that that's true, like the Bible, right? Because once you tell one sin, uh, one, one lie, pardon me, it's hard to stop. Uh, but it's there in verse 5. They've taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. It's to the point where now it's just easy. They become good at it. That first time you tell that lie, man, your conscience is like all aflame and, you know, the adrenaline is rushing and the heart is beating and you're all aflutter and it's not love. It's fear. It's a God-given fear and it's good. But the second time, there's less adrenaline. The third and the fourth time, it's become comfortable. By the second dozenth time you do it, it's like, I'm pretty sure that's true. 
They've taught their tongue to speak lies and they weary themselves, committing iniquity. And then last product of deceit seen clearly in this passage is that it, it invites the discipline of God. You're like, wait, didn't you say that? Wasn't that the first product? It brings judgment. Same idea, slightly different, and the nuances are important to see both. Deceit invites the discipline of God. What I want you to see that's happening especially in this passage, and it's a glimpse of encouragement for us. God will utterly, ultimately, judge the nation, and as a result, many will die. But in the interim, and especially when it comes to this particular issue, God is not going to just take lives. God doesn't kill people just for lying, does he? Some of you go, um, yeah, he does. Remember Acts chapter 5 and a couple people named Ananias and Sapphira? Well, anyway, sometimes he does and he can. But by and large, as a good father, what he does is he disciplines his children. And that's what we see. Verse 7, end of verse 7, what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? You see the, the fatherly care? And what has he just said in the line before that in verse 7? I will refine them. He doesn't say in verse 7, I will crush them. No. I will assay them. I have no idea what that word means, but it probably has something to do with correcting and improving, not destroying. Verse 9. Shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself? Yes. Yes. He will respond, but he will do it as his people, as their God. As he works with his daughter, he calls them. Well, the rest of the chapter, I want to briefly just outline for you, and I've put it there in your notes already. What's going to happen at this point in verses 10 and 11 is the prophet speaking about how the land will mourn. This is, this is all of nature basically agreeing with, with the prophets weeping and the Lord's weeping. Now the land itself will mourn over the judgment when it comes in its fullness. And then we're given the reason in verses 12 to 16 because they've turned from God's law. Here they are championing the law, pounding their chest. There are people saying, look, man, we cleaned up the temple. We found the law. I mean, there was a big law reading day. I remember it was a super cool festival. He's like, yeah, yeah, you guys heard it in your ears, but it didn't touch your heart. And then he speaks of the people themselves who will weep for the many lives that are lost in verses 17 through 22. Now, I want you to notice how the message ends, and I want you to see how the chapter circles back, and it emphasizes for us what really is the main point, and that's why I speed ahead to this. In verses 23 and 24, what we get is the heart of truth. This is the climax of the passage. It's an echo of what we've already seen. It is the solution to the problem, the heart of truth. Verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. You guys have heard these verses before, right? They're commonly quoted. After today, you'll forever know the context unless you already do. 24, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, says the Lord. 
What is the heart of truth? Answer, it is knowing him. You see, the people could not have gone so far astray if they would have first have known the Lord. And the beauty of knowing the Lord is when we turn back to him, when we come back to that place of submission, he renews and refreshes our heart and our conscience so that that sin of lying begins to feel like that first experience of the fear of God again in the very best way. Thank you, Lord, for seeking to rescue me from my stupidity and wanting to start down this snowballing path again. Because in your love, you remind me. If we know the Lord and we walk in the Lord, then that is the heart of truth. It's the knowledge of the Lord himself. And the opposite dynamic is also true as seen in this passage. That if we walk in deceit, eventually we will forget the knowledge of the Lord sooner or later. And so God gives young Jeremiah these words to say, you know, you people are feeling pretty safe and secure today because you've got some money, because you're fairly smart, because you're, you're healthy and you're strong in your bodies. Don't boast about any of that because that is no protection, morally speaking. You could be morally destroyed in a moment and have all of that. The only protection, morally, spiritually speaking, is the knowledge of the Lord, and that's the answer. That's the heart of truth. Jeremiah 9 then is and uh, Jeremiah 9 then ends by Jeremiah telling them and the Lord telling us that our hearts must be truly made new. 25, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. What do you mean? Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. Now, I'm not going to go off into the issue of clipping the hair on their temples. That is related to the law and it is related to a custom of the day of the other nations by which they were known. The point of what we want to notice is, did you see the list of people in verse 26? Can we do a little Sesame Street right now? Can you just look at that list and figure out one of these things is not like the other? Who's second in the list? God's people. What a humiliation. Circumcision as a practice, as a ceremony, as a religious rite was known in some other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Circumcision wasn't unique to the Hebrew faith. It's its purpose and its sign as the covenant with Yahweh, that was unique, but it was practiced in other places. What a humiliation to the nation to say, I'm going to punish all of those who are circumcised but not circumcised. What do you mean, circumcised but not? Look at the last word of verse 26, in heart. And that's the issue. Their hearts need to be made new through the knowledge of God. Through the knowledge of God, reality is apprehended. 
I remember reading years and, and years ago. I was um, college age-ish years, was like mildly fascinated with like great philosophers. Um, I wish I could say that like I read and understood those dudes, I didn't. I just put like some of their words up on the wall in my dorm, because it was cool. Um, but I was enamored with the idea. And I remember a smart philosopher, and I don't even remember now who it was, if they were Christian or not, saying, the right starting point for a true understanding of the nature of man is the study of the nature of God. Because you can't know what humans are. You're just going to get it wrong unless you begin with the study of God. And that's the idea here. Through the knowledge of God, reality is apprehended. Truth can be known. Lies can be exposed for what they are and put off. Through the knowledge of God, truth is cherished. cherished. Through the knowledge of God, men and women of God are made strong. So the last word here in chapter 9 is heart. Because the issue as it is with every one of the Ten Commandments is always a heart issue. Because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. So whatever deceit or lies that come began there. And so here is the lamenting reminder. Boast that you know me. Seek to know me and seek a new heart. And the problem is, by and large, the nation won't. You know, it's the great news. Is that the Lord gives his prophet a full message. Not just a warning. Not just even a a direction towards how to fix it but in fact, a promise and a hope to trust in. Because the work of God and the message of the prophet don't end here in chapter 9, do they? Wouldn't you guess, wouldn't you guess that the message of the prophet on this issue gets picked back up later in Jeremiah? Wouldn't you guess that the the promise of God on this issue gets picked back up in the book of Jeremiah? Flip to chapter 31. Here we have what is the perfect fit for the needs of that generation and the needs of man today. For their storm and for ours. Here's what Jeremiah 31 says. Jeremiah 31 is is the new covenant that God will give after the people have so grievously broken this one. Jeremiah 31 will say, Days have come when hearts are made new. Days have come when hearts are made new. Jeremiah 31 is going to say days will come, but I'm just putting it in present tense for us in our experience. Jeremiah 31, read with me starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Do you hear the lament? Do you hear the grief over his people that he loves? 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Ah, see, he's rectifying the very problem. The problem is you're circumcised on the outside but not the inside. You have the law in your hands because you found it in the temple and you read it in front of everybody, but it hasn't changed your heart yet. I will take the law and put it in your heart. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Remember, the issue was knowing him. 
And they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Amen. Amen. This is what Christ does with the ninth commandment. He does the very thing that Yahweh promised to do a little bit later than Jeremiah 9 in Jeremiah 31. He brings the new covenant. He gives a new heart. He writes the law on our heart. And yes, our consciences can be seared. We can sin enough against our heart and against our conscience to where lying becomes more natural. But for the believer, it's going to be a lot more difficult of a journey. Praise God that it will be. I believe I'm speaking to a room, mostly at least, of people who have been made new, who have been regenerated by grace through faith in the goodness of Christ, totally as a gift. And in you, in your heart, dwells a deep and profound desire for the truth. You love the truth. You run on the truth. You were made for the truth. You should, you should all be nodding your heads. I get it. You don't all have to. But, you, you know, your, your inner heads, you're nodding, you know, agreeing yes. Because that's what it means to know Christ. That's what it means to be God's men and women of truth. If you can't, if you didn't, then something is potentially seriously wrong. You are far afield. You are much amiss. And man, find, find somebody to pray over you and pray with you and run back to the Lord. Because the Lord will receive you back. And this is what Christ does with this law. He says, well, I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to forget your sin. Oh, I know you've messed up. you messed up a bunch. In fact, I know way more times that you've messed up than you even know. But that's okay as far as east is from the west. And I've given you a new heart. Days have now come, brothers and sisters, when hearts are made new, right? It's exactly what Jeremiah says we need. Do you remember what Christ said to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? She wasn't even a good Jew. She wasn't even a good law keeper. The Samaritans, by the way, were half-breeds. They were people who had worshipped in the wrong place and worshipped idols. That's, that's why, by the way, the Jews kind of hated the Samaritans. If you read your Gospels, you know the Jews kind of hated the Samaritans, and you're like, ooh, man, bad racism. If you were a good Jew, you had some good reason to kind of hate the Samaritans at some level. Jesus goes to this broken people who long since have gone astray, and he says, my father, my father's on a mission, and he's seeking, and he's seeking a people who will worship him, a people who will worship him in what? Spirit and truth. That kind of people is the kind of people my father looks for. What's the point of Jeremiah 9? We either serve the Lord, we know the Lord, and we serve him in spirit and in truth, or we're amiss, we're, we're afield, aren't we? See how God has birthed people in truth by cleansing us from our sin, by, by forgetting our iniquity, by bringing us to the bedrock of reality in Christ. And now in the world in which we live, in the culture, cultural waters in which we swim, do you expect that truth should be found out there? That's not what we should expect. 
Praise God if you find it. But, oh, friends, we should be carrying it wherever we go. What a beautiful preserving power the truth has. What a high and glorious call our God has given. What a great privilege for us to be men and women of truth. May the Lord take his word, wash us in it, and nourish us so that we grow more in that this week. Stand with me and let's close together in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we rejoice that you are true. Many lies in the midst of our day, even much confusion and deception in my own heart at times. I forget what's real. But you, my Lord God, are real and you are true. And you have given us a love for you that is true because you've opened our eyes to see the reality of Christ. Father, might you feed your people on your truth this week. If, if we are starving because, because of the lies that leave us parched and empty and hungry, might we come and feed on your truth this week. Might you give us reminders, Lord, to prick our conscience that we would be a people of truth, even those who walk in integrity and swear to our hurt, if necessary, that it might be for your glory. This is what we want. Help us. And Lord, any here in our presence, friends, if you don't know the God of truth, the God who is not afraid of any hard question, the God who stands behind every fear, every worry, every concern, every question you might ever have, he is so not afraid of it because he is the God of truth. Lord, we pray, would you call to their hearts? Would you reveal to them your son and his beauty? Would you open their eyes so they might lay down their defenses and run to you? A great God, do your good work. Be glorified. All this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for worshiping with us today.